Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Welcome back to the Healthcare Happy Hour. I know you anticipated part two of our CapCon recap, but we decided to push that to next Friday, March 19th, because earlier this week, Congress passed the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act, another immense piece of legislation aimed at providing COVID-19 relief to businesses and consumers. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, I'm joined by Marcy, John, and Chris to discuss the relevant details. So let's start by talking subsidies. What sort of changes did this legislation make to COBRA and ACA subsidies? Well, first off, I think we need to make sure that we're talking about the two subsidies separately. So it gets a little confusing when we're throwing that word around and we're having kind of two buckets here. So let's start with COBRA subsidies. This is something that we have been talking about for a really long time. About a year ago, almost to the date, we had emergency guidance that came out that allowed for an extension of the COBRA election period, allowed for folks that qualified for COBRA to retroactively elect COBRA, and then also for them to delay their premium payments. So kind of a lot going on there with the emergency rules that happened with COBRA. And when those came out in March of 2020, there was an expectation that Congress would act to provide some type of COBRA subsidy. That did not happen expediently. And here we are a year later after those emergency rules and Congress has acted. And in this final bill, the 1.9 trillion bill, we have a hundred percent COBRA subsidy. So you may have heard us talk in the past that they were throwing around an 85% COBRA subsidy. They have increased it to a full 100% subsidy for COBRA. Now this is going to go forward. It's not retroactive. It applies beginning April 1st and goes to September 30th. So um, for those that have are already elected COBRA or are still within their election period and retroactively uh, select COBRA prior to the April 1 of this year, the COBRA subsidy will not apply to them, but it will start applying April 1st to September 30th. And we've gotten a lot of questions about exactly how this is going to be administered, if it's going to be provided to the individual or to the employer, how this is going to be accounted for. And in the bill, it does refer to the secretaries of labor, treasury, and HHS to provide rules on exactly how that's going to happen. There will be model uh, notices 30 days after enactment as you pointed out, led by the Department of Labor in consultation with Treasury and HHS. There are a lot of notice requirements. Some of them are spelled out in the statute. We know that you're gonna be really anxious to get your hands on these model notices. And this is where I think that we're going to see the agencies follow up on this act of Congress much quicker than we saw 
Congress reacting to the emergency rules a year ago, even though it took Congress a year to kind of catch up with those. I don't think it's going to take a year for the agencies to release these this guidance. It will probably happen within the next couple of weeks. So we'll see it hopefully before that April 1st date where the subsidies will go into place. So we do want to highlight that and make sure you all know that more guidance is coming. And then we're also expecting more guidance because we had just a couple of weeks ago that notice about the outbreak period and COBRA and the confusion about whether that extension ends after a year or if it extends after the outbreak period. So we are expecting some more guidance about that as well. So unfortunately, we can't give you all of the details right now, but we will provide them as soon as we receive them from the agencies. So looking at this from the consumer's point of view who might be newly unemployed, the legislation basically sets out two directions. One would be to what we're talking about now. You choose to stay on your employer plan for COBRA. And with 100% subsidy, there is an appeal to that, particularly if you think that you are going back to that job at the end of the period when the, um, when the pandemic is over, or perhaps you've already paid down your deductible. So that, that is quite an appeal. But the legislation also creates a second path for the newly unemployed, and that is within uh, the individual market under the ACA. And so you become newly unemployed and you can go onto the individual market at, at the ACA. And unlike in the past where you had to declare what your income was, and maybe that would make you ineligible for subsidy, the legislation does is says anybody who's newly unemployed is eligible for the individual market at 133% of poverty. And so that is the full subsidization that the ACA creates for an individual. So that is also an appealing route for the recently unemployed who is also looking to get health insurance. The legislation on the individual market also makes a number of different changes. Overall, it subsidizes the individual market under 400% of poverty more generously. If you make more than 400% of poverty, it also creates a possible way for you to get subsidization. If you make more than 400% of poverty, but your insurance premiums is more than 8.5% of your total income, you will now also be eligible for subsidization. We know that a lot of the uninsured in this country are that group just above the 400% of poverty that have not been able to get any assistance. Furthermore, if you look at your 2020 taxes and perhaps your income changed during the year of 2020, for where you would have no longer been eligible for those tax credits, the government for 2020 will not be able to go after you, ask for that money back. And I know for people who are maybe in their gig work or in and out of employment, that has always been a concern of trying to estimate their income for the year and how much subsidies to be requesting. In the past, sometimes individuals had to pay that back. They will not be required to do that now for the year 2020 as you're filing your taxes this year. And with that, if you are in 2021, which is hopefully where all of us are, and you are already receiving a subsidy on the exchange, and now with this change that you are now newly eligible for an increase in your subsidy, you are able to either retroactively go back to the beginning of your plan year 2021 to receive credit for the extra subsidy that you would have provided. So this is retroactive on the exchange subsidy where the COBRA is not. Or if you prefer not to go back to the beginning of this year with your 
exchange subsidy and have that reconciled, you can wait until you do your taxes for 2020 for that April 15th, 2022 deadline. And you can have that reconciled there financially for the subsidy that you would have earned towards the beginning of the year before this passed, since it is retroactive on that 8.5% requirement for no premium being over 8.5% of the benchmark plan, which is compared to what is normally 10%. Moving on, there are some provisions in the legislation regarding tax deductions. Can you speak about some of those provisions and the impact they might have? So there are multiple tax provisions and deductions in here. I think the one that will have the largest impact is the child tax credit and the increase in the child tax credit and the fact that it's also refundable. So the refundability, I think, will become the the biggest piece of this. As we know, if you don't pay taxes, it's hard to use tax credits to to bring down what you, you have to pay the IRS. So refundability allows the tax credits that are people eligible for that if they don't still owe money in taxes, income taxes, or otherwise at the end of the year, it actually will pay you the money back. And so part of the difficulty with the child tax credit in the past had been if you were making under a certain amount of money, the child tax credit wasn't valuable to you because you were not making enough money to begin with to take any of money off your taxes. This will be one of the larger changes to the law that's out there, particularly when we look at issues about child poverty in this country. Yes, and I think another provision that also helps specifically those with children or dependent care is that there is an increase in this bill for how much an employee can put into their dependent care FSA. It's an increase from the usual $5,000 to $10,500. And so I think that's going to help as well, especially since those are a tax-preferred method of putting funds into your FSA. This is just for 2021. And I will point out that the way to be able to do this is that the employer has to consent for you to do this. They have to allow it with their plan. So if you're an employee with an FSA, you can't just automatically put those extra funds into your dependent care FSA. It does have to be something that the employer is going along with with their plan for the FSA. There's also an extension of the employer retention credit that will go through the end of 2021. This allows for a preferred tax status for those employers that retain a certain amount of employees through the pandemic. So something that was put into place very early on in 2020 and has been very beneficial for businesses to be able to stay in business and to keep their employees on their their payroll. And so this is something that we think will be very beneficial to employers through the end of 2021. Yeah, this provision has been in other COVID packages in the past. Some business, it sort of depends on your business model, but some businesses have much preferred to use this as opposed to applying to PPP loans and others in order to retain their employees. So again, it's presenting employers with multiple options depending on your business model and the sort of taxes your business has been paying. And of course, we like to see people maintaining their employment because along with that goes with maintaining your employer-sponsored coverage, which just bolsters that segment of the market. The bill also made some slight changes to Medicaid expansion under the ACA. Can you speak a little bit about that? 
Sure. So it requires that vaccination coverage and administration be covered. They are expanding the FMAP match to cover those costs. There's also the rebate program for covered outpatient drugs used for COVID treatment, also covered under the FMAP. It also extends significantly services for pregnant women and postpartum. And there is an optional mobility unit crisis intervention. And why that's significant is I know a lot of us are concerned about mental health services, and that would be a service that could be provided in this way. There's also additional aid for home and community-based services. And again, there's an additional FMAP increase for that. And many of these provisions are put into place to try to entice states that haven't already expanded Medicaid under the ACA to do so. So as you'll hear some of the provisions that we're talking about, like the exchange subsidies that we mentioned earlier for ACA plans, and then now talking about Medicaid expansion, there has been some criticism on the COVID relief bill that there are possibly too many provisions in it that are aimed at extending the ACA or trying to do so. Most of these are all time limited. So there are pieces that are only extending the subsidies until the end of 2022. Some of the provisions that John just mentioned on the Medicaid piece are also time limited. So that is kind of the counter to the criticism that these are all being put in place to expand the ACA because they are not pieces that are permanently put in place. They are limited and Congress would have to act again, conveniently enough, right around the time of midterm elections to be able to have some of these pieces extended. Hi there. We are sure you've seen our weekly COVID-19 email updates, but did you also know that we have a relief fund to help NAHU members? This fund allows members to apply for monetary assistance or donate to help fellow NAHU members in need. Please go to NAHU.org and click the COVID-19 Relief Fund button right on the home page. These changes or provisions affect the private market. There's no public option in here. That would be the alternative if they didn't do these COBRA extension or increase subsidies in the exchange, which are all private plans. And so I think that's a far better pathway than doing a public option or Medicare for all. Yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, several more progressive members of Congress and organizations did advocate for putting unemployed individuals or uninsured individuals into a Medicare for all system or a public option as their way of dealing with the pandemic during COVID claiming that the private sector and the employer-based healthcare system was unresponsive to their needs and incapable of dealing with a global pandemic. The great thing about the efforts of grassroots lobbying, like-minded organizations and others is that uh, we are continuing to use the private sector system in order to manage and deal with the pandemic as opposed to going towards a single payer style system in order to deal with healthcare during this pandemic. Another important aspect of this bill is increased funding for the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, which has proven invaluable for many businesses across the country. By how much was this funding increased? Yes. So this bill includes a $7.5 billion increase to the Paycheck Protection Program. 
similar to what we've seen in the past with the several rounds of COVID relief that we saw throughout early 2020 and I think one that was towards the end of the summer last year that continued to foster the PPP loan and continue to put funds into the loan. This does the same thing. It does change a few of the provisions. It allows for actually more businesses to be able to qualify for the PPP loan, which include things like some larger nonprofits that weren't included in the first rounds to qualify, as well as certain restaurants and some other businesses. So this is really a chance to expand the program to allow more organizations to be able to qualify and then to have more funds available for those that may have missed out on the first and second and, and even third round of loans that were going out. So between the House and the Senate, the American Rescue Plan Act has gone through several changes. For those who may have been following earlier news about what's in the bill, what were some of the major changes you think people ought to be aware of since the initial House passage back in February 26th? So from our perspective, the biggest change was in the COBRA provision. As Marcy said, first of all, we've been talking about that for over a year. It has finally come to pass in the House. It started at 85% and the Senate increased it to 100%. And I think, and they feel, and the CBO concurs that it will reduce the amount of adverse selection and that will actually keep the cost down. Yeah, I I agree with John on the 85 versus 100%. All the actuaries with the insurance carriers, TPAs, and others are concerned at a COBRA subsidy that was anything less than 100% because unfortunately what you find happening is it tends to be sick people who sign up for COBRA without any sort of assistance. And so in order to help those risk pools in place, that 100% will reduce the risk to insurance carriers and to those who self-insure by, by balancing out that risk pool, but also adding healthy people to it. And then another big change that I think is just something that you all have probably seen in the news, and I do think affects our industry in the long run, was that phase-in of the increase of minimum wage to up to $15. And where this is most impactful for getting this passed is with some of those Democratic senators that are, are very moderate, the mansions, the cinemas that felt very strongly that this should not be included in a COVID relief package, that this was something that is outside immediate short-term COVID relief, and that this is something that should be taken up in separate measures. So this was taken out of the bill that increase in minimum wage which when we talk about provisions being taken out, it might sound like, okay, well, that's not in there anymore. Okay, let's move forward. But really having that taken out was able to free up those moderate Dems to be able to vote for this bill over this past weekend. As many of you know and have followed along with us, this is a bill that's going through reconciliation. So it is all tied to the budget. It's going within this past fiscal year. There there wasn't one earlier, so they're able to tie it into this year before April 1st. And that means that as a reconciliation bill, everything is tied back to the budget, but that it can pass with a simple 51 majority in the Senate. So they needed all of their Democratic senators lined up to be able to vote for this. And so taking out that 
phase in to the $15 minimum wage was one of the key turning points to being able to get them to that threshold to be able to pass this with a simple majority in the Senate. One of the other areas that changed going from the House bill to the Senate bill is related to unemployment. The House bill offered a more generous unemployment of additional of $400 a week. Current law adds a additional 300 and that expires on March 14th. When the bill got to the Senate, the more moderate Democrats were concerned that a $400 addition would encourage people not necessarily to go back to work um, and instead stay unemployment. So that was reduced back down to uh, the previous $300 in additional unemployment that had been agreed on bipartisanly in prior COVID legislation. So in general, the Senate bill moved a lot of the provisions, be it from the minimum wage to unemployment in a more conservative position, as Marcy pointed out, to bring in the more conservative Democrats, such as Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. They were also able to extend out that $300 too from ending in August to ending in September. And along the way, um, over the past several weeks, there were also negotiation points over the amount for economic stimulus, wanting a full 2000 and then going down to 1400 and including 600 that was previously extended through other bills and then being able to say that those combined together make the 2000 So let's just go with 1400 and this bill. So there is an additional economic stimulus piece that will go out to folks that are in certain income brackets. And right now, the aim, it looks like some of those checks will go out at the end of March or or beginning of April, which I know for some is, is the most important part of this and possibly not how it's going to affect the industry, possibly how it's affecting your pocketbook. So it's good to point that out as well. Everybody who got the $600 will not necessarily be getting the 400 because it does phase out quicker. And that is, again, another uh, change that was made from the House to the Senate bill in order to satisfy the moderate Democrats who were concerned that those funds were going to wealthier individuals who did not need them. Yeah, and this final bill, those full $1,400 payments are slated to go to those with the adjusted gross income up to $75,000 for individuals and 150000 for married couples filing jointly. So what sort of regulatory developments do you expect as a result of this bill? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are going to expect some further regulatory guidance on the COBRA subsidies, exactly how they're going to be administered, how they're going to be working with the employee and the employer on this, the notice requirements that are going out. John mentioned that there are going to be Further notices, and there were some pieces of model language to be included there, but there is going to be some further guidance by the Department of Labor, Treasury, and HHS on exactly how this COBRA subsidization will work. And then I think we're also going to see some guidance on the PPP loan section as well. Every time we've gotten a new update through legislation on the PPP loans, We've also gotten accompanying guidance on on how the new funding will work. Each time it's tweaked just a little bit more. Sometimes it's tweaked on how things are going to be paid back. Sometimes it's tweaked on how the SBA will be receiving 
the application. So we'll be following those very closely and providing you updates as soon as those pieces are coming out. Yeah, I think the regulatory provisions are going to be very important, particularly part of the reason there is less detail in this bill is because they are using the reconciliation process. And at times, certain direction cannot be included in the bill and have the bill stay under what is called the bird rule for reconciliation. So they specifically leave some of these topics undecided and vague in order to make sure they don't get in trouble with the parliamentarian. So it makes the regulatory process even more important than sometimes in other pieces of legislation. And honestly, oftentimes that's a good thing. And I think it is a good thing in, in this particular situation without having some of these finer details put into statute and instead being put into regulations where they can be a little bit more nimble if things need to change or if they need to provide more guidance or more clarification. It's definitely much easier for the agencies to do that than Congress, as we've obviously seen since it's been such a long time since we've had uh, such a robust COVID relief package. It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? This week, we are toasting to the Compliance Corner and their speedy turnaround on what is going to be included in the American Rescue Plan. They are hosting a Compliance Corner webinar on March 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. So we encourage you all to sign up and register for that where they will be going into an even deeper dive on what was included in the American Rescue Plan than what we've been able to cover today during the podcast. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.